Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Adam Williams, and you are listening to another episode of Retail Redeveloped. I'm so excited today because I am talking to someone that is commonly referred to as a retail prophet. And it is frankly not every day that I get to talk to someone with that kind of title. Frankly, it makes me feel like I need a better title in, in, in my world. Uh, I am being joined by Doug Stevens. Now, who the heck is Doug Stevens? He is one of the preeminent voices in retail today, a retail futurist. He has his fingers on the pulse of absolutely everything retail-wise, not only what's going on in retail today, but more importantly, what we should expect in the future. Now, I can tell everyone this book is absolutely worth your Amazon dollars or your local bookstore dollars, but not only has he written this book, which is called Reengineering retail, but he has a brand new book out as well that we're going to get into as well. I'm going to, I'm going to let him introduce his, his new book. But before that, who is Doug? He's one of the world's foremost retail industry futurists. His intellectual work and thinking have influenced many of the world's best known retailers, agencies, and brands, including a couple you might know Walmart, Google, Home Depot, Disney, yada, yada, yada. Uh, also listed as one of the industry's top five global influencers. I follow him on Twitter. I follow him anywhere I can follow him. And and Doug, thank you so much for for taking a few minutes out of your busy schedule to talk to us about retail today. It's my pleasure, Adam. And thanks for following me. In fact, I, I think you there was somebody following me on the highway the other day. Was that you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't you can't escape, Doug. You can't okay, escape. all right. No, that's I'm, tra- cool. that's I'm cool. tracking your every move right. just to make sure I'm ahead of the curve. Okay. Uh, but before we jump in, I, I have a hundred questions I want to ask you. But before we do that. Take a second and just tell everybody a little bit about you know what you do and, and more importantly the why uh, behind behind what you do. I think it'd be really helpful for context. Yeah, sure thing. So um, I spent uh, in total, I've spent about thirty years in the retail industry, uh, working in in both Canada and the U.S. Uh, I started in retail in the kind of the glory days when you could still work your way up through a corporation. There were still rungs on the ladders in in the middle of most corporations. So I worked my way through the HR stream, store operations, marketing, franchise sales, product product sales, distribution, dealer sales, you name it. I sort of got the the, the full education in retail. And I finished my corporate career in 2008. And you might recall a little disruption that was going on around 2008 2009 yeah like, just just a yeah just a little a little financial thing and and it was at that point having spent the time that I'd spent in the retail industry that you know I thought the the industry is critically short-sighted i mean it's an industry that just rolls from earnings report to earnings report uh Companies set goals at the beginning of the year, and by June of every year, they throw their objectives away, and it's like it's all about sales and profit for the next report. And so um, I felt in 2008 there, there was such a, a magnitude of change taking place that the, the industry needed a, a voice that was looking out further on the horizon and trying to make sense of everything that was happening economically, technologically, uh, what, what was going on with the media landscape? What about the changing of the guard in terms of consumer generations? And so with that, I, I founded Retail Profit with an eye to not dealing in hindsight, not dealing in current analysis, but really just keeping a fixed gaze on the five to 10 year horizon in retail and trying to bring those insights to to executives who are planning strategy. And um, 
I'm very, very uh, happy and fortunate uh, to say that there was a response to that. There was there was clearly a need for that in the industry. And in the ensuing uh, 12 years, my goodness, uh, in the ensuing 12 years, uh, I've written three books on the future of retail. We work with uh, just a, a phenomenal uh, client base uh, that includes brands like BMW, Walmart, um, Google, uh, you you name it. Um, so that's what we do. And, and it really is about providing unbiased insights on the future of retail to help executives wrap their arms around all of the things that are going on. That's, that's a great recap. Um, I want to start, I want to go back a little bit because your book, your book's timing have, have been amazing. Uh, the, the first time we spoke at length, it was about re-engineering retail and I want to I want to walk through kind of four of the of the major headings in that book, and then let you kind of walk us through what has changed in your mind uh, in between this book and the book that uh, your your latest book called "Resurrecting Retail: The Future of Business in a Post Pandemic World." Uh, but I want to go back a little bit um, and and just walk us through some high points. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through retail is dead, media is the store, the store is media, and re-engineering retail. Now, those the first time I read those four headings, frankly, frankly, I, I had to read them multiple times to wrap my head around you know, the, the premise of, 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 your, of your thought process. And I'd love for you to walk people through just kind of that overarching theme of that book and then I, then I want to fast forward to, to, to your next book as well. But, but let's start back at the book that kind of got me originally to, to stalk you down the hallway, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, sure thing. I mean, yeah, reengineering retail sort of picks up with an interview that was given. Um, and, and forgive me if, I, if I'm uh, fuzzy on the date, but I believe it was 2013. Mark Andreessen who is uh, one of the partners in the eponymous uh, Andreessen Horowitz investment firm, was giving an interview, and the interview ranged into the topic of retail. And Andreessen basically said, in, in, in as many words, he said, yeah, re- the retail guys are, are toast. Um, you know, everything is going to be bought online. Stores will be irrelevant. Uh, incumbent retailers are going to struggle, and uh, and this is kind of just the beginning of of that um, of that bloodletting. And I mean, it was a pretty dramatic statement. There was a huge reaction in the retail industry, and as you can imagine, there were those that said, "Yeah, right on," you know, absolutely, that's a battle cry. Yeah. Right. And then there were those that said, this is complete and utter nonsense. And let's face it, Andreessen Horowitz is an investment firm that deals largely in technology. And, and are they basically just, you know, either smoking their own supply or are they, <laughs> are they just trying to promote their own business uh, model? And, and I decided at that time to take a, a, maybe a less impassioned sort of approach to it. And I thought, well, let's, let's uh, put the, the argument under the microscope. And that was really the beginnings of the book, Reengineering Retail. And what I discovered along the way is that, to some extent, Andreessen had a, had a very valid point. Um, you know, our, our current retail industry is largely a product of the industrial era. Mm-hmm. If we're being honest about it, and 
uh, clearly, we don't live in the industrial era anymore, right? We, we are straddling the line between industrial and digital. And, um, and, and so there was a tremendous amount of change coming. But what I also discovered was that it wasn't binary change. It wasn't binary in nature. It wasn't as though, you know, as, as uh, digital uh, retail increases, physical retail therefore must die by, de- by definition. I felt that there was a symbiotic relationship still between the two, but that the fundamental purposes of both were changing. The fundamental purpose of digital media was changing. And and digital media, in fact, was transforming from being advertising to being shoppable content. That an Instagram post was now becoming, in the consumer's mind, the store. That, uh, you know, a TikTok video uh, was becoming the store in the consumer's mind. So media was going through this transformation. And at the same time, physical stores were also transforming into a really powerful manageable and measurable media channel. Uh, and, and yet most retailers weren't looking at their stores as being an important media channel. So that was really the jumping off point for the book. And, and then really it's, it's, a, it's a, a discussion uh, about the two sides of that argument and an examination of how both of those worlds were evolving. That was really the, the starting point. So go back three years, people would refer to, you know, the, the media is the store, shoppable content, which shoppable content is a, is a great term, by the way, and the store is media, just, you know, they, they, everybody wants to label everything and put it in a bucket, no matter, no matter what we're talking about in life. And, and, and that was just omni-channel, right? That was just something that people threw everything you just said in a bucket and said, we need to get good at omni-channel. How right. big of a cop-out or how outdated of a term do you find that, or do you think that, that that's still, are you still hearing this as a catch-all? Do you agree with it, or do you think it's, it's complete nonsense? I, I'm not a fan of the term, and, and the reason is, I, I th- for two reasons, really. I, I think that first and foremost, omnichannel was never really designed or intended to be a consumer-facing strategy, right? Got it. Um, it was it was never uh, a you know a coherent sort of framework for how we take experiences to consumers. If anything, it was more an admission on the part of the retail industry that they had been operating most retail companies as two separate silos. businesses, yeah. right? Yeah, right. in in complete silos. And there was an acknowledgement that we have to get better at stitching together these two things on the back end, so we get a single view of customer, single view of inventory. And in fact, a single view of our own performance as as a retail organization. So there's that. I think by definition, it was never a a consumer-facing strategy. But the other implication, I think, of Omnichannel was that in in sort of captioning this whole thing as being one seamless experience from the moment of brand recognition right through to purchase, the consumers just gliding along these greased rails of commerce and every experience bleeds into one another without differentiation. And I felt that that was fundamentally misguided right. because I, I felt that there was a, there's a fundamental difference in motivation uh, when a consumer steps into a physical store than when they're, than when they're online, 
poking around and looking at products. There are different attributes to that experience. There are different functionalities within that experience. And rather than trying to dumb all of these experiences down to one thing, one experience, I felt that we need to be celebrating the unique attributes of both. So uh, that's when I started working on, well, is it omni-channel or is there something deeper going on here? Is there something more historic? And that's when I sort of happened on this notion that what's really happening is that media and physical stores are changing roles. They are changing fundamental roles. Retailers used to go out on the open market, buy as much media as they possibly could <clears throat> in an effort to, to acquire customers. If you were Procter & Gamble, your only mandate was really to outperform and outspend Johnson & Johnson in advertising. And if you did that, life was good. You could acquire right. loads of customers and, and your, your product line would, would, would fly. But the problem is that that is not the case anymore. Digital media is prohibitively expensive now. And, and post-pandemic, it is going to soar to heights that we never imagined in terms of cost. To the extent that some brands now are saying, look, I can't even afford to acquire customers through digital channels anymore. The, the lifetime value of the customer doesn't even equal the cost of acquisition. So, you know, so there's that. Um, but the other side of the coin is that stores, physical stores now, are becoming a very efficient, manageable, and measurable means of acquiring customers. So where we used to look at it as a, a game where I go buy media in an effort to drive people to distribution where they buy a product, and therefore the store is the end of the marketing funnel, what I was discovering is that increasingly the store is the beginning of the marketing funnel. The store can be the point of acquisition, and once we truly uh, engage a consumer, galvanize a relationship with them, treat them to a mind-blowing experience, then we can set them off on any channel they wish to buy from us on. So it was a complete reversal of roles and that stores were becoming media and media was becoming the store. So do me a favor, unpack that notion of the store being, I'm going to butcher your your your. Uh, saying, but the store as being the billboard, the store as being the, the front, of, the top of the funnel, not the bottom of the funnel. Walk me through a real world example. Because when I think of this concept, I, I treat it as like the halo effect kind of concept, right? I treat it as, and, and I hate picking on the same retailers all the time, but everybody knows them. So Warby Parker can look at their analytics and see that a tremendous amount of uh, they had a lot of traction in specific zip codes and they go and plop a store in this zip code. And then they see this halo effect of they sell more stuff online and they sell a bunch of stuff in store. And, and that's how that that's how they kind of keep keep the wheel turning. But what you're saying sounds a little different than that. Or maybe I'm just saying it in a different way where maybe um I'll, I'll pick on another random re retailer, Tacovas selling selling boots, right? I'd, I'd barely ever heard that name until they went high street retail in a, in a really sexy neighborhood in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where I'm from. And, and there, maybe that's how they're going about acquiring it. So and how, where am I missing the boat? Where am I misunderstanding or, or help me, help me kind of break that down a little bit for people listening. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, ultimately, what we're trying to figure out here is how do you gauge the true productivity of a physical store? 
in a in a world uh, in what I would refer to as being a you know sort of a post digital world um, that we live in. How do you gauge now the the uh, the impact and the performance of a physical store? And I think there are three components to that. We can't negate four wall sales, right? A store is out there and they're selling product, and that that certainly is one measure of of productivity. But the second measure that you point to is what's the halo effect of that store? So assuming that, you know, a consumer never goes into the store, but they drive by, right. uh, you know, uh, day. five days a week yeah. on their on their way to work. And then they sit down in front of their computer one night and they're looking, at, you know, for a product in that category and what comes to mind. Right. So there's that halo effect where the, the store is literally a billboard. But there's a third component. And and the truth is 99.9% of brands are not currently capturing this value, but there is a third component of value for stores. And that is simply the brand media impressions that take place within the four walls of that store every single day, whether somebody buys a product or not, right? So if, if I go into that Warby Parker store and I spend 20 minutes and I talk to your people and I, you know, I, I get to, to interact with your products, understand your brand, understand the value, uh, the value equation of your brand. And I leave, I don't buy anything. The question is, was that a worthless impression? And the answer clearly is no, right. it wasn't. I mean, Warby Parker's out on the market every day buying digital media to try and achieve the same thing, Right. Tell me about your products. Tell me about your brand. Tell me about your values as a brand. So we're not measuring that right now. And, and I mean, let's face it. We're talking about billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of media value that's taking place as you and I speak right now in stores around the world that no one is capturing the value of. And so it got me thinking, and I, and I talk about it more now in resurrecting retail, why aren't we measuring that? We, we have no problem saying that buying an ad on Facebook is worth X dollars. Buying an Instagram ad, the cost of that ad is X or Y. Why are we not able to attribute a value that everyone can agree on for the value of a physical in-store impression with a consumer? Because if we can capture that value, it changes everything. It changes the way we plan stores, design them, manage them, measure them, as soon as we start looking at it through the lens of media. And furthermore, if I'm a, an executive and I'm running a 200 store chain, every year I've got to make decisions about which stores are performing, which are we going to close, who are we going to move, et cetera, et cetera. Where are we going to open new stores? Every year I'm having to make these decisions. And if I'm only looking at the top line sales or, or even the profit line, I'm not looking at the full picture. And I'll give you an example. Um, I've, I've, I went into a, a Nike store once on the uh, Champs-Élysées in, in Paris. Massive flagship store, huge, packed with people. Probably, I, I wouldn't even hazard a guess as to what their annual sales are, but I would say like, you know, five to $10 million easy, right? Right. It was a terrible experience. And, and look, I like Nike. I like Nike and I like what they do strategically, but it was not a good experience. 
Uh, it wasn't, uh, there was nothing that was engaging about it, personalized about it. There was nothing remarkable or memorable about it. In fact, I would argue that it, that it was a negative uh, in terms of equity for the brand. Now, if I'm an executive and I'm looking at that store, I'm going to be looking at the, at the top line. I'm going to be looking at what it's pumping out in terms of sales. Um, it, I may look at another store that's, you know, five miles away and say, well, this store is only doing $2 million, you know. So if I'm going to close a store, I'll close the $2 million store. That could be a huge mistake because that $2 million store could actually be delivering better, more favorable and more valuable brand impressions for Nike than the flagship store on the Champs-Élysées. So we've got to look at the media value that these stores are creating. And once we start capturing that, it changes the complexion of how we run the business entirely. And there are a few brands out there that we're working with that are now beginning to experiment with this and beginning to try and capture that value, um, which is really just an equation. How many people came into the store? Uh, how many people, uh, uh, sorry, how many people came into your store? What is the value? of that impression that you're generating? And is that a positive or a negative impression? If you can capture those three elements, you have what you need to attribute a dollar value to the media value. So I'm going to go ahead and apologize to people that, that don't want to really get into the weeds on this stuff because it's, it's about to happen. Uh, and I, I apologize. Turn, you can you go ahead and mute this if you, if you don't want to really <laughs> nerd out on this stuff. So this you're touching on something that is, I think, one of the most interesting and complex questions that brick and mortar uh, landlords and retailers are facing right now. Because our metric of uh, sales per square foot is, you could argue, not nearly as a, as good of a metric as it was even three or four years ago. And right. I think that you're you're touching on something wildly important. And my question is, how how can you measure that uh, the, those brand media impressions? Is it is it some combination of geofencing through cell phone data, human footfalls, and heat maps for a for a, a development? You know, is it is it you know, some sort of survey mechanism that you can figure out if it's a, a positive or negative? Like this yeah. is a question that I hear being asked by extremely smart people. And I haven't heard anybody touch on the brand media impression value kind of metric like you just did. So for, forgive me, everyone that doesn't want to nerd out on this, unpack that a little bit more on how you think this metric can start to, to be realized and measured. Sure. <clears throat> First of all, let's, let's look at what we measure today. Let's look at how we measure media today. So I buy an ad on Facebook or I buy a, a, a flight of ads on Facebook and I get a report from Facebook um, a month from now and it says, you got this many impressions for your ad. So the first question is, how do I know that? How, how do I, as, as the, the, the media buyer, know that I got those impressions? Well, Facebook tells, tells me I did. So I have to trust Facebook. Facebook would never mislead you. They are altruistic <laughs> to Absolutely. the core. We know this. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, they, they would uh, absolutely never, ever go astray of the truth. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but the second piece is if they say, well, we, we can validate that there were this many impressions because we have, uh, we have a set of standards for measuring that. And I think the last time I checked, if you watched a portion of a video on Facebook from a brand and you did so with the sound muted, uh, they, they include that as an impression. That's a brand impression. Uh, and, and they attribute a value to that. So to buy that impression costs me three bucks or four bucks or whatever the case may be. So it's a pretty inexact science to begin with. This whole notion of how we measure media, and it's always sort of struck me as funny, is we, we will accept that from Facebook and then we turn to our own physical environments and we say, oh, but that's going to be really difficult to measure. I think that it's a matter of doing a few things. First of all, we have to get a really, really clear sense of what, what constitutes uh, uh, tr a true uh, dwell time to form an impression. So what is a reasonable expectation for how long a consumer needs to stay in our environment to really form a, a, a full impression of our brand? And that's a decision that can be made by the brand. The second question is, what do we internally believe? And again, this is not going to, it's not a number that's going to show up in a shareholder report or show up necessarily on a profit and loss statement. But as internal guidance, what can we as executives within a brand agree the value to us of that 5, 10, 15 minute engagement with that real living, breathing consumer in one of our stores is worth to us, right? So is it worth what a Facebook ad is worth or a YouTube ad, or is it worth some multiple of that, right? Um, we, we have to establish that internal agreement around that number. The last component is whether or not those impressions that we are generating are largely positive or largely negative. And again, I don't want to paint this as being an exact science. It's not, but media measurement is not an exact science at any way. So if we understand how many people came into the store in a given quarter and spent the, the length of time we have deemed necessary to form an impression about our brand, and we know that there's a, a nominal value that is applied to each of those impressions, and we also know that on balance, the majority of the impressions created were positive, then we have all the means that we need right now to attribute a positive media value in dollars to that location. If it's a negative value, if consumers say, yeah, you know, we came in and, and it stunk, it was terrible, then you are running essentially a negative commercial for your brand in that store every day, multiple times a day. And then, you know, obviously experiences can be neutral too. They could be sort of, eh, it was all right, you know, uh, in which case there's no value. It's really just the value of four wall sales. So again, we may not be able to get down to the penny and say, you know, this store is generating exactly this much media value, but we can get a relative sense. And we can certainly, if we're using the same yardstick, if I'm LVMH or Burberry and I'm using the same yardstick for all stores, I can quickly determine within my hierarchy of stores who is generating the, the most positive media value for the brand. And how far away do you think we are to that becoming one of the metrics that 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 not just the the one percent of the one percent of these brands are thinking about and measuring i mean all these direct-to-consumer brands are so 
data and analytics driven that you would think that they're already thinking about. I mean, I, if you and I are talking about it, I would assume they're at least talking about it. How far away do you think we are from that being more common? So there's an awakening that's taking place. And believe me, I mean, you know, and I think I say this in Resurrecting Retail, I have been, I've been literally howling at the moon for eight years about this, you know, this notion that physical stores are not a distribution channel anymore. They're a media channel. We need to treat them that way. Uh, and for literally for five, six years, I would say that and people just sort of cocked their heads and I could see this sort of, you know, confused expression on their faces. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I think I get that. Well, I think people are getting it now because, I mean, if you look at um, if, if you look at China, for example, 52 percent of China's retail economy in 2020 was was transacted online. Fifty two percent. So. By definition, the minority of what is being bought and sold in China is happening in physical stores. So how do you measure? How do you continue to measure the effect or the effectiveness of a physical store if, <laughs> if your product sales are declining, right. right? And you get to a point where maybe, you know, if you're Nike, uh, maybe, you know, 30% of everything you sell is actually coming out of a store. So how do you begin to, uh, or how do you continue to, to gauge the effectiveness of a store? You have no choice but to either close the store entirely and do away with it, or begin treating it as a media property, as opposed to just a, a, a distribution property. And to your point, a lot of people are talking about this now. We're working with, uh, we're working with brands, we're working with retailers, we're working with shopping centers who are also trying to figure this out because if you're a shopping center and you know your tenants are seeing their four wall sales decline year after year after year how do you convince them that they should still be in your shopping center 5 years from now well, you have to try to capture what the media value of being there is in that center so everyone's talking about this now do you think uh, you just touched on something else that that I, I want to ask about. I mean, it seems to me that there's going to be a continued fragmentation of you know, what we tend to buy online versus what we still want to, you know, experience, touch, feel, smell, taste, whatever. I mean, do, do you see this continuing to where it's like, you know, if you just want a, a cheap one, a fast one, a, you know, a, a whatever that's obviously going and has already gone online, but do you see a fragmentation of, of actual different types of products that seem to weather this better than others? Or is it just kind of an eroding across the board to, to online? Like if you're, if you're talking to a, a specific store and they sell X type of widget, like, no, 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 you've got to, you've got to stay brick and mortar or no, 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 you just need to, you need to pack that up. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, let, you know, let's, let's look back 20 years. You know, there was a time when it didn't matter what you sold practically. I mean, every, every brand out there was saying, well, the internet's fine if you want to buy, buy this or that, but for what I sell, you know, that will right. never sell online. You used to hear that from bedding manufacturers, you know, beds, right? Oh, no, no, no. People love to come in and, and lie down on the bed for 10 seconds and then make a $2,000 decision, you know? Um, well, 
that was proven completely false, right? Somebody unlocked a way to sell beds online. And frankly, I think now 60% of beds are sold online uh, wow. and consumers show absolutely no hesitation to do that. Uh, used cars sold online, new cars being sold online, um, you know, real estate, for God's mm-hmm. sakes, being sold online. People are making quarter million or more uh, dollar decisions but buying online. So the list of things that will never be sold online or that you must go to a physical store for is, is depleting pretty quickly. But again, and I can't reinforce this enough, that does not necessarily mean that you close all your stores. It means that you start thinking about your stores differently. So if you're, you know, if you're Temper Sealy, for example, and you still have bedding showrooms and you know that people aren't using them the way they used to, the question becomes, well, what could we use that space for? What, what, could, we, what could we present in that space that would add value to the consumer's experience? So could we maybe uh, turn it into a space that really just focuses on sleep? and the, the, the benefits of sleep and all of the accessories that can help you achieve a good night's sleep. And could we branch out into other things? Could we provide lecture series on, for people on how to meditate, how to relax? How, you know, I mean, as soon as you start thinking about the store as a means of conveying something other than just product, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, convey the big idea around what you sell it takes on a completely different shape uh, again. So to your question, will we continue to see fragmentation? Absolutely. Will we continue to see product categories splinter off and be sold very easily online? Absolutely. Um, Will there still be a need for physical stores? I, I think there should always still be a need for physical stores because the store can tell a different part of the story and engage consumers physically. So, Using that same logic of <clears throat> using four walls to tell a story, I'm fascinated by kind of retail as a service right now and, and what that means. Uh, I, first time I experienced this firsthand was at, uh, was at Beta at, uh, in, in Manhattan. And I'd heard about it and, I was, and I'm a nerd about this stuff, so I really wanted to check it out. And I went in and I totally got it because they had you know, uh, some things that, that have been targeted to me on Instagram, but they're high, high dollar purchases. And I just would have no interest in spending $500 on a Theragun massager when I'd never seen one in person. Right. Or, uh, <clears throat> you know, plenty of things like that. Sonos, whatever, whatever high, high ticket items that you just yeah. don't think about. And I've talked to some people that are like, they're like, dude, that's just like sharper image 2.0. And I've talked to other people that are like, this is brilliant. This is the future. <clears throat> you've got neighborhood goods, you've got beta, you've got naked, you've got uh, all these different people that are trying to figure this out. I'd lo- but it was interesting that the, the actual um, staff members in the store were more brand ambassador educators than they were salespeople. You know, they weren't trying to get me to buy a Theragun. They were like, no, no, no you got to use this Theragun. It's, it's going to change your life. Oh, you know, it's going to do this. It's going to do this. It's going to do this. And they were like, we don't care if you buy it or not. We're just here to educate you. 
So I'd, I'd love to understand if you think that that category has merit or if it's just like a think tanky idea that, that probably isn't going to go anywhere or, or maybe it's somewhere in the middle. So, so I think it's a brilliant idea. Um, and, I, and I felt that way about Beta from the first time I walked into their very first store in Palo Alto in 2015, I think it was. And for those that don't know, the thesis here was that, look, um, if you walk into the average Best Buy, what, what is surprising about that experience, right? How few people Nothing. are there to help you. That's always <laughs> well, surprising. Well, yeah, right. That's, that's, the one, that's the one surprise. Um, but, but, you know, it's the same product assortment. It's the same lineup of stuff that you're likely to find anywhere else. Um, and why? Well, because buyers get incentivized on turns, right? If I'm a buyer in the photography category, am I going to bring Leica cameras into a Best Buy? No, of course I'm not. You know, who's going to spend 10 grand on a camera in a Best Buy? I'm going to bring in stuff that I think is going to turn. And by definition, then, my assortment is going to be largely what any, uh, you know, photography uh, or, or camera store is going to sell because everyone's trying to achieve the same thing. So first and foremost, the question was around beta, how do we inject more interest, surprise and uniqueness into the experience? How can we carry products that may not be huge commercial successes, but that are wickedly interesting and entertaining and that people might find um you know, that they are things that they want to buy. The second piece was, what is it that brand manufacturers are really looking for from retail? Is it really just about volume? Or are there situations where a brand would really love to get a sense of what consumer response to a product was? You know, um, you know are we moving in the right design direction? Is our product currently something that people find uh, intriguing? Uh, is our pricing right? Uh, you know, is, could we play with that in the market? So in other words, there's a value to data. And beta sort of understood that. They understood that brands are interested in obtaining data around their products that can inform their distribution strategy. So they put these two things together. They said, let's bring in what we think are the coolest products that we can find and let's also enable that environment to really capture data about traffic, about dwell time, about interactions with products. Let's give the brands the ability to A-B test on things like pricing or messaging or placement, all of those things. And um, to my mind, beta has been one of the most successful, call, I'll call it new era retail models uh, out there. They, they've expanded like crazy and they continue to do so even in spite of the pandemic. So brands like that, brands like neighborhood goods that sort of take a community approach and a curation approach to retail are amazing. Um, brands like Camp in New York City, you know, new era toy store that really doesn't sell toys, right? They sell it. They sell experiences with toys. Oh, and by the way, they sell a few toys along the way. So it's a totally different model. And these are the people that are pioneering the next era of retail. It's the, I think it's that dramatic a sea change. Wow. That's, uh, I, I feel the same way. I think it's, it's fascinating to see people take risks in this business uh, because, you know, five years ago, that's how you got fired by taking risks. And now, and now it's, it's so interesting to watch the people that are doing it. 
And you know, Adam, too, I mean, what we now also recognize is that there is no reason why the things that happen inside a, a physical store on any given day have to remain inside the physical store. There's no reason why the audience needs to be that restricted. So uh, I advise to a, a, a group called Store uh, that runs a business in New York City, the Allure Store, which just opened. Uh, they are the founders of the Allure Store. And this is a partnership between Condé Nast and Store that operates this uh, location. All of the products that you see in the store are literally lifted off the pages of Allure magazine. They are presented to consumers in an editorial way. The people that work in the store are genuine influencers, people that uh, you know, are, are capable of building online content and sharing it with their own tribes of, of followers. And so the store is really a stage. Every day, that store is just a stage where content can be produced and content can be pushed out to the universe. And the audience, therefore, is not just the two, three, four hundred customers that happen to come in that day. It could be the three or four million customers that are seeing that content online. Um, so, again, stores are stages. They're studios. Uh, they're, they're experimental environments. You know, they're, they're theaters. Um, but what they aren't anymore is just a straight-up distribution vehicle for units of product. All right, Doug, you've, you've already been extremely generous with your time. So I, I've got to get, before, before we run out of time, I've got to touch on the, the reason I reached out uh, a few weeks ago to set this up, which is, which is the metaverse. Like I, I tend to nerd out on this stuff pretty good, but I mean, when, when you're, when you're, when you're really kind of throwing a curveball that makes me have to read an article twice, you know, I, I, I had to reach out, walk me through, cause th this sounds like something out of a Marvel movie or a Spider-Man movie. Uh, and in fact, I think you did lift it from, from a sci-fi book or something like that. If I, if I remember correctly, walk me through what is the metaverse, why you think it's so important and just unpack that concept a little bit for people uh, so they can kind of hopefully see around corners a little bit like you try to do. Sure. So first of all, I'm, I'm going to take, I'm going to ask your listeners to go back to, I don't know, like 1990 in their minds. Um, some of your listeners probably weren't even born in 1990, but that aside, that aside, 1990, if someone had said to you that there's this thing called the internet and it is going to revolutionize everything. It's going to revolutionize how we go to school, how we work, how we communicate. You know, it, it's going to really shape every aspect of society. A lot of people, and, that, and people were saying that in 1990. They were saying it before 90. They were saying it in the 80s. And a lot of people um, just sort of poo-pooed that. Say, yeah, yeah, whatever, right? I'll, I'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it sort of thing. Well, we all know what happened, right? Um, Imagine, try and imagine a world today without the internet. It's virtually impossible to even conceive of. Well, we're there again. We're standing at the same precipice today, except it's not the internet that we're talking about. It's the metaverse. And the term metaverse uh, comes from 
uh, a book, a 1992 book called Snow Crash that was written by a, a fellow named Neil Stevenson. And it posits in that book essentially a, an alternate reality, a parallel reality uh, where we as human beings can enter the virtual world and then step out of that virtual world back into the real world. But along the way, we, if we want, we can pull elements of the virtual world into the real world. And so there's this sort of bleeding together of reality and virtuality. That was sort of the premise. And, and there have been movies like Ready Player One that sort of emulate this kind of idea of bouncing back and forth between uh, these two realities. Um, and, and, and an interesting quote, and I think I used this in that article, that, you know, investor uh, Chris Dixon once said that the next big thing will look like a toy. You know, uh, whatever it is, they you know, huge technological advancements usually start off in their lives looking like toys or they look ridiculous. Like the first mobile phones were like the size of a loaf of bread. You I mean, know, the first iPod, right? Yeah, it was right. This little like cartoony looking plastic thing with a big wheel. Yeah, it's a little, yeah. little different than this guy. Right. And so when we look at a lot of these things, we dismiss them. And so there are a lot of things right now that I think fit into what Chris Dixon is talking about. So we got blockchain, there's augmented reality, virtual reality. We're talking about NFTs. People are buying like, you know, um, $200,000 virtual T-shirts and stuff like that. Um, you know, cryptocurrency. So there are a lot of things that look like toys. And they are all part of what will constitute, at least to some extent, this notion of the metaverse. The metaverse, in theory, is not just an extension of the internet. It is really a new internet. It, it is literally the building out and the creation of virtual worlds that are connected together by operating protocols. Um, so that we eventually will be able to travel between these worlds and potentially live part of our lives within them. It's not inconceivable that if I'm a real estate agent, for example, a commercial real estate agent, that a percentage of my time could be spent you know, selling physical real estate in Soho or, or the village, but the other percentage of my time is selling real estate in the metaverse, uh, in, in a world like Decentraland, for example, or Upland, um, literally selling plots of virtual real estate for real world dollars uh, to brands that intend on building out commercial enterprises within those, within those virtual worlds. Um, and we began to get just the smallest taste of that during the pandemic. With the amount of time that people were spending on, on Zoom, uh, as you and I are doing now, and other virtual platforms, we began to get a sense of what this could all mean. Like, could I right now be wearing a virtual T-shirt uh, from, a, from a brand like Gucci or Burberry? And the answer is absolutely. And, and some of these brands are actually selling virtual goods that I could be that I could buy and, and be wearing right now. Um, so in, in a nutshell, that's what the, the metaverse is all about. Uh, it is literally the creating of a parallel reality that we can live in, entertain in, learn in, commune in, and spend potentially significant portions of our life inside. 
And some of these worlds are being built out as we speak. Fortnite, Decentraland, Sandbox, uh, Facebook Horizon. Facebook just announced that they're uh, creating virtual workspaces for people. Um, Upland sells real estate in the virtual world and and more. Um, So we're standing at the threshold. And so if somebody says, hey, what do you think about the metaverse? My encouragement is don't just say, I'll believe it when I see it. Don't just say, uh, yeah, well, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll stick with my trusty internet, thanks. Don't, I'm not interested in any metaverse. Uh, it, it's going to happen. So do you think to, to try to bring this down to a less <clears throat> esoteric kind of thought, you know, how can people that are trying to run a business get prepared, right? Like, I mean, if the, the things that, that have, have struck me lately has been more the virtual reality, the augmented reality, like trying clothes on when you're not actually in a store, placing a piece of furniture in a room that's in your room, piece of furniture can place there and you can see how it looks. So these seem very, you know, crawl before you can walk kind of stabs at what you're talking about, which is much more of a, of, you know, a totally, totally, um, you know, parallel virtual and and real universe. How can people kind of bring this down to ground level and, and, and think about how to not get left behind, right? Like how does a retailer, how, how does somebody in our world try to future proof when, when these things still seem like, they're out of science fiction. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, think about it this way. If we think about the transition that a lot of businesses made to the internet and, and some of the mistakes that were made along the way, right? So when, when businesses first began developing websites, what, what they were typically doing was they were sort of going through their archive of legacy materials, like non-digital materials, and they were creating um, static sort of PDF catalogs on their websites, right? Um, in, in other words, just sort of saying, okay, well, we already have these assets. We'll just port them over to this new platform, right? And, and it was a huge, a huge failure in most cases because the internet gave us capabilities that were vastly greater than just putting a PDF up on your website. Uh, so rich media, video content, all of these things. And so the brands that were successful in, in their first internet forays were brands that recognized that the potential for the internet was much, much, much greater and, and very different than the sort of parochial legacy approaches that we had up until that point. And they treated it as a wholly different animal with different capabilities. We have to do the same thing when we talk about the metaverse, because the mistake that brands will make is feeling like, oh, I get it. We're just kind of moving our internet store into this, this thing we call the metaverse, but it will fundamentally act the same way. And the answer, I think, is no, it doesn't need to. So let's assume that you're going car shopping, right? Today, you would go to a Carvana or to any of the, you know, the, the, big, the big automakers, and you would check out their websites. Maybe you'd schedule a test drive. Uh, maybe, maybe you'd buy the car there and then. But in the metaverse, what you could potentially do is you could go into a virtual world. You could go, go to a brand within that, an auto brand, mm-hmm. that gives you a driving experience. So 
you have a full-on racing experience in a BMW M3 uh, where you are, you are literally, um, you know, it's like heart pounding, you know, test drive, right? Once that experience is over, you come back to the real world and you pull the, the car that you were driving out of the virtual world and you put it in your living room for your wife to look at, see what she thinks about it. And then the two of you decide you're both going to go for a test drive. So you re-enter the virtual world and you're back in the test drive. I mean, that's what we're talking about. So the, the need, there is no need for a store to resemble what we currently believe a store should look like. Right. Canada Goose doesn't just have to recreate a Canada Goose store in the metaverse. The experience could be that I am actually, uh, you know, on a dog sled at the polar ice cap with uh, Lance Mackey, who, who's uh, Canada Goose's spokesperson. You know, we can think so far out, out of the box here. Now, to your question, what's the first step? I would say the first step is very much like what we, what we recommended in 2007, 2008. As companies were starting to awaken to social media, we said, just get into the game. First and foremost, stake your claim. Um, make sure that your name is protected in the metaverse. Stake, stake your claim to as much as you possibly can in terms of setting up on different platforms, uh, being present as these worlds are being built. Uh, do get real estate inside the metaverse in one of these worlds where you can begin to build out and iterate around what your concept could look like. So it's really, we're, we're so in the infant stages of this, um, but it's really important that brands just sort of stay connected to it, stay invested in it and watch it evolve. It's wild stuff, Doug, this is wild stuff. So let me ask you one, one closing question because we're, we're out of time. Sure. This sounds like a complete, a complete departure from everything we ever, ever thought about retail. Can brick and mortar survive in the metaverse? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think it can. Because today, as we speak, and I may not say this 10 years from now, but then again, 10 years from now, I'll probably be retired. And, and I might not even care. You'll be living um, in the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just be, yeah, 24-7 in the metaverse, checked out. Um, I, I think that there, there is. I, I think that we, we as human beings still have this innate, almost undefinable ability to sense human energy. Agreed. And... We, you know, and, and we feel it. We feel it at different times. We feel it when we listen to a powerful speech on, you know, at a, at a conference or when we're in, at a, a, a concert, concert that just yeah. blows our mind, right? And so I think for the time being, we will still crave real world experiences for that, for that element, for the tactile, the sensorial, the human, the emotional. But the metaverse is going to go a long way to creating this sort of middle place that, that feels in many respects very, very real. 
uh, and, and leads us to a completely different level of capability and, and uh, inter- interoper- interoperability uh, within those worlds. But yeah, I think that there's still going to be a place for real, physical, human experiences. But we have to start treating them differently. They're not just mini warehouses that distribute products. Not anymore. That's a perfect place to end it, uh, Doug. So so much fun, so uh, exciting to talk to you and and hear and hear a little bit about your view of the future. New book, Resurrecting Retail: Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. Doug, as always, thank you so much for taking time, and I, I enjoyed immensely. And as always, Adam, a real pleasure. Thanks for having me.